sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The United States is cutting more than $200 million in aid to the Palestinian Authority. The decision comes after a review of U.S. assistance to the PA. The funding had been in question for years due to the controversial policy known as Pay to Slay, a compensation plan for Palestinians who attack Israelis. The Trump administration can act as a model for all 68 nations that give money to the Palestinian Authority and to UNRWA. Maybe that will happen. What I would say to my Republican colleagues is please, please explain to voters at home why you allowed Planned Parenthood to continue receiving taxpayers' funds. Please explain to voters at home why anyone would trust politicians who continue to break their promises. Republican leadership has the power to unblock the amendment tree and allow the vote. The question is, what is more important to these Republicans, saving lives or spending money? And now, Stacey Washington. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. And <laughs> it's hour two. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, we have a lot more to talk about. We have a lot more to get into. And uh, when I was saying, where are my Annas at out there? Don't Men, don't think I was leaving you out. Annas. It, that's a type and shadow of a person. She was real in the Bible, but any person can be a person of prayer. And so just like we look to David for his excellence and we want to emulate, you know, uh, it, there's so many people in the Bible who were like, "Woo, I could, you know, Lord, give me some of that. It's the same thing with her. We want to, if you want to be a person of prayer, she's a great person to read about in the Bible scripturally, but we can all devote ourselves to that lifestyle. And it doesn't mean that we turn into weird, you know, Those people, it just means that we are effective in our prayers, that they actually make things happen because we actually pray the will of the father and that we get answers to our prayers. That's, that's what we're looking for here. And the fasting is an element that we have kind of fallen away from. And if we want to see movement, if we want to see energy, energy on these issues, we got to, we got to start fasting. We got to start fasting and praying together to see God's hand move. All right, we are going to have a guest in second segment. It's Ron Coleman. He's an attorney and legal scholar. He'll be on with us to talk about Michael Cohen, uh, campaign finance laws, the whole attorney-client privilege that has been completely obliterated. And then we're going to get into some of this talk about Trump's U.S. aid uh, decision that he just made. But right now, let's go to Jake in Arizona. Hey, Jake, thanks for holding on over the break. I'm not sure if we still have Jake. Ah, there you are, Jake. Okay, so I don't know if we still have him. Um, So now I want to talk about this USAID. So this was an issue because, first of all, the Palestinian Authority has aligned itself with Hamas. And so it's been since 1993, I think, that we've been talking about removing their aid. But instead of removing it, we have ratcheted it up so that in the last 15 years or so, we've given them over $6 billion in USAID. Now, what's important about that? Well, $6 billion is a lot of taxpayer money. And Rand Paul, again, and I'm back with Rand Paul. I know some people have some concerns with him about foreign policy and different things. But when someone's right, they're right. And so I'm, I'm willing to... If you're right, you're right. Just like I said about last, I wasn't playing when I said I would vote for a pro-life Democrat who wanted to, to seal the border. I sure would. Absolutely. Yes, I would. So this isn't about party. 
and and the fact that he's a libertarian, you know, I'm not down with a libertarian thing, but I am down with him telling the truth and his continual efforts to not just defund Planned Parenthood, but to defund the Palestinian Authority and many individuals who receive U.S. aid. He gets such a bad rap for saying that if Israel were able to take care of herself as a nation, self-sufficiency, which they have said they want, that we would no longer be required to give them aid because we, they wouldn't need it. He gets such a bad rap for that, like he's anti-Israel. He's not. He's not anti-Israel at all. And he's anti-borrowing money to give to our friends. That's, that's where he really comes down on this. So he's actually blasted GOP leaders for trying to block an amendment to, to defund Planned Parenthood. But he's also been um, at the forefront, the leading edge of this whole eliminating funding for the Palestinians. Now, why is this important? Because... Palestinians actually spend millions of dollars a year paying people who blow themselves up in Israel. So if a Palestinian commits an act of terror in a westernized nation, their family gets taken care of by the Palestinian Authority. And they use some of the money that they get from America to do that. So they get their money from three sources. One source, obviously, is USAID. So Trump cut one third of the USAID budget to them, which is, amounts to $200 million dollars. Here's Rand Paul talking about it in Cut 3. Palestinians are crying foul after the U.S. announced it's cutting $200 million of aid to Gaza and the West Bank. The United States of America and President Trump's administration are blackmailing and putting pressure on the Palestinian people. We were completely expecting it under the policy of blackmail and threats that the United States of America practices. The move comes several months after the U.S. slashed more than half its funding to a U.N. organization that aids Palestinians, known as the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, that, on top of Washington's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and its opening of an embassy there in May, has escalated tensions between the U.S. and Palestinians. According to a senior U.S. State Department official, this latest funding decision, made at the direction of President Donald Trump, takes into account the challenges the international community faces in providing assistance in Gaza, where Hamas control endangers the lives of Gaza citizens and degrades an already dire humanitarian and economic situation. But Palestinian leaders claim the measures are weaponizing humanitarian aid to force them back to the negotiating table with Israel as the U.S. tries to put together a peace proposal, one they fear will favor Israel. On the ground, the funding cuts are already having an effect, especially on NGOs in the region. Several are either reducing their operations or closing down entirely. That means not only less aid for the needy, but also no work or income for their Palestinian employees. So here's what's funny about that. I say um, they say that the U.S. is being unfair and is trying to blackmail them to go back to the negotiating table. Why do they need to be blackmailed? And. It, you know, here's an easy way to keep your USAID since we're giving it to everybody for no good reason. Just stop blowing things up. It's so easy. Stop funding terror. Stop doing terror yourself. And also stop going over to Israel and blowing stuff up. Stop sending kites with bombs attached to them over into Israel. Stop launching rockets into Israel. Stop all that. Make some concessions on your, you know, so-called Palestinian state. And you keep getting aid. I mean, it's so easy. Like, Maybe it's not easy. Maybe it's just it's just something you have to do, killing other people. Like it's just a thing that you can't stop doing easily. Maybe. I don't know. But I'm 
of the mindset that when they say it's blackmail, what they mean is how dare you attach strings to all that free money you've been giving us? We just want the free money. We don't want to do anything for it. Just give it to us. Hill hands are still out for the other money though, right? So they've only had a third of their USAID budget cut. They also get money from the UN, which is primarily funded by the United States. The, the, our UN funding amounts to 22% of the total budget, but the, the actual um, entity, there's a, there's a specific committee within the UN that funds this particular country, Palestine, and the 40% of the funding for that committee comes from the United States. So once again, you know, borrowing a million dollars a minute or an hour, some astronomical amount, borrowing all that money so we can pass it on over to the Palestinians, some of it, who are then using it to commit acts of terror against our ally and against us. So I, I just don't see how it's a problem. Like, how is this an issue? So if you want to call and talk about it, 866-963-2037. Um, I just get so annoyed that this has taken so long to get done. Again, why do we have so many people working for us, you know, on both sides of the aisle who don't just absolutely get outraged at the idea that we're funding this? How do they not just say, you know what, it's one thing, like we have, we have actual soldiers that have been killed by Hamas, soldiers that we've even had people killed in Israel, killed by these people, and then, you know, knifed to death, one, one of our, our troops, and Hamas then gave the family like a million dollars. And so we know this happened. And instead, you know, we're still giving them money. And I, so they're like, well, the, you heard the clip. The clip that I found, I didn't want to do a clip where it was just someone else talking about the same. I found a clip that's an actual news clip from an organization. It's not one of our big networks. And that was a clip that was played internationally. And so they're presenting it much more from like a neutral standpoint. Like, look at what the Americans are doing. Here's what the Palestinians have to say about it. Well, I actually think it's kind of odd that they get a perspective at all. They're like kids getting allowance money. You know, they, they're, their country's so jacked that we have all of our relief agencies in their country. And our USA dollars go to our relief agencies and other relief agencies that are set up by other countries in their country. So we're actually over there not just giving them the money, but we're taking care of them lock, stock, and barrel. All of the, like they're, they're saying now people won't have jobs because some of their jobs were funded by our USA dollars. I'm sorry, what right do you have to American taxpayer dollars for your job? Can't you create your own job and fund it with your own currency? Before you start talking about you need your own Palestinian state, how about that thing you're working with now? You just run that okay for a couple years. Could you even get 12 months worth of running that thing on your own before you start hollering about needing a, a you know, we need part of East Jerusalem? For what? What can you do with it? If we don't give you any money, what could you do? If we said you can have a part of East Jerusalem, but we're not giving you any more USAID, no more UN aid, you wouldn't get any more aid at all. You just got to run your country on your own like everybody else. We don't get any aid from the UN. We run our own country. You run your own thing and then come holler at us if, you know, if anything like jumps off war wise. But other than, you know, go, go, go do your own thing. No help. Well, they would be like, oh, we can't, we, we can't do that. We want we want Eastern Jerusalem, but we don't want to actually pay for it ourselves. We don't want to take care of it ourselves. We don't want to run our own country ourselves. We don't even want to be able to 
um, do anything on our own. We need you to do everything for us, create the jobs, fund them, create the relief agencies, fund them, everything. And all we're just going to do is keep hurling rocks and bombs into Israel because it doesn't have a right to exist. What am I missing here? Why do they get any money from us? Why do they get any help at all? If they, why, why do we allow them to have peace talks with Israel when they can't even fund their own country? They're a chief exporter of terrorism and they refuse to acknowledge the fact that Israel, I, I even hate the terminology that we use. We want them to admit that Israel has a right to exist. How about just admitting that it exists and it's not actually anything that you can do anything about? Also, how about if you just stop talking like if you say it doesn't have a right to exist, that that actually changes anything. That's like me saying the sky doesn't have a right to be blue. It's still going to be blue whether I believe it has a right to be blue or not. It's not about me admitting it, although it would help people think I was more sane if, that's the, if that was my belief. People would want to hear an admission of that because they'd be like, OK, she's getting closer. But how are we even having a negotiation between Israel, the nation state, and this, you know, group of people when they don't have the ability to run their own country? Even if Israel said, you know what, forget it, just take all this stuff, just take it, then they would probably come to America and say, now we need more aid money because now we have more, we have our own country, but we still don't have any money. How about y'all make a country first that actually makes something, exports something, actually has a, you know, a legitimate form of government and is not a state sponsor of terror, doesn't commit terroristic acts, then you can ask Israel if they would like to give you something. And if Israel says no, instead of you acting like it's a reason to hurl bombs or anything, you just go back over to where you belong and keep working on your country. Or ask one of the other Arab nations to absorb you so you can be a part of their country, become a part of Jordan or one of the other, you know, like adjacent countries just become just go in with the other people who are of the same faith that you are and just stop to stop all this madness the, the the reason this is even still going on is because we keep legitimizing them and this is an instance where everyone always says well if donald trump meets with um korea the dictator of korea north korea he legitimizes him well he's already a dictator he at least has a country his people are starving they don't have electricity or food but he has a country and he has his own borders, and he has his own military. The Palestinians don't have any of that. So why are we even legitimizing it? Why are we even having this conversation? All right, when we get back, we're going to have Ron Coleman, attorney and legal scholar, on with us. Stay there. When our health insurance renewal notice arrived last fall, my wife and I made the decision to drop our plan. With the monthly premiums and deductible, we'd have to pay $30,000 just to use it. So we did our homework and switched to MediShare. The cost savings are incredible, over $500 a month, and we don't have to pay for services we don't need or don't agree with. Then out of the blue, she had to have emergency surgery. Scary stuff. $150,000 in hospital bills, and MediShare members took care of everything. All we paid was our small portion. I'm a doctor who's been in healthcare for 20 years, and this is one of the most impressive programs I've ever seen. Thank God she's fully recovered, and now we're telling everyone about MediShare. 
Call 855-PSALM-23 to find out how much you can save on your health care. MediShare. Call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. A recent Gallup poll shows that a majority of Democrats view socialism favorably compared to a new low of Democrats who view capitalism favorably. To put this in perspective, just a few years ago, a majority of Democrats viewed capitalism favorably. Meanwhile, more than 7 in 10 of Republicans have had a favorable view of capitalism during that same period of time. The Gallup poll was quick to acknowledge that their poll does not define socialism or capitalism. As I've mentioned in previous commentaries and even in my latest book, Christians in Economics, this might explain some of the lower percentages. The term capitalism has often been degraded in the popular culture. The Gallup poll also believes that it is possible that a drop in Democrats' positive views of capitalism is related to Donald Trump's presidency. After all, Trump has been described as a free market capitalist. If you dislike Trump, then you're likely to also dislike capitalism. One last reason for the change can be linked to the prominence of socialists within the Democrat Party. Senator Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have been traveling the country speaking to crowds and endorsing candidates. Some of the proposals by Sanders that used to be on the margin of the Democratic Party are now becoming mainstream. Democratic socialists like to point to Sweden and Denmark as socialist success stories, but these countries are not technically socialist. And as I've discussed in previous commentaries, the success of these countries depended on a capitalist foundation long before the significant expansion of social programs. The Gallup poll announced that this was the first time Democrats viewed socialism more favorably than capitalism. This will affect how they vote in these midterm elections. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you so much for being here and also for the live stream and all the different places that we're putting the program right now. It's really exciting to be able to do this and have um, a, a way for different types of listening and viewing and all of that. So really great to be doing that. And also head over to StaceyOnTheRight.com. Uh, hit the subscribe button over there. Also follow on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter, wherever you'd like. We're all over the place. All right, right now it's my pleasure to welcome Ron Coleman. He's an attorney and legal scholar, and uh, he's joining the program. Uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, I'm not sure if we have our guest or not. Do we? Do we have our guest? Okay, perhaps not. Um, my call screening thing is down, so I don't. I have no idea what's going on with the with that. Um, so I, what what I'm really interested in as I'm interested in seeing what happens in the midterm when it comes down to these kind of core issues. When we're, when we're on the break and I'm listening to this breakdown of how many Democrats are really uh, kind of upset about socialism or how many Americans actually think socialism is okay, especially people on the left. It's interesting because 
this was something that Democrats used to roundly mock the idea that socialism could be a viable uh, alternative for this country. Yet now we have millions of them saying, yeah, you know what? It's probably it could probably work in the face of a Venezuela being on fire and being unable to take care of itself now. And its citizens just pouring into all of the surrounding countries, just dive bombing out of Venezuela because they're starving to death. All right. So now we can welcome Ron Coleman, attorney and legal scholar to the program. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Sure. So um, it's Michael Cohen and the campaign finance laws and what to expect in the future in terms of attorney-client privilege. Let's let's get into it. Well, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, as someone who has practiced law in New York and New Jersey for uh, a lot more years than I'd like to acknowledge, uh, the, the way and the rationalization that. Cohen's files were essentially made public because um, remember they were not only they were not only uh, given access they were, the access to them was not only granted to the FBI um, and subsequently to the government you know, to, to the government through a privilege uh, a privilege t- um, team but 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 also there was uh, extensive leaking to the press I mean once the stuff. Is once the Fourth Amendment is blown past, I mean, attorney-client privilege on the one side, on the one hand, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures on the other hand, you can't put this stuff back in. There's something that, that's absolutely unnerving about what happened with Cohen, and, it, and it's so bizarre. Uh, the, the silence of the organized bar, the, the, the relatively um, pliable response of, of, the, of, the, of the judiciary to the request to, to, to breach the attorney-client privilege here makes it very suspicious. It certainly gives reason to believe that we, we don't know a lot of important things that, that by now we should know, or, or it may turn out that the reason that we don't know them is going to be something incredibly explosive that we haven't heard yet. But taking a snapshot of the way the world looks in, at the end of August in 2018, what happened to attorney-client privilege in the Cohen case um, it's a travesty. So how do we go back from that? Does it, does it take a case that would be appealed to the Supreme Court? or Because it has to be that when someone does something as wrong as what I feel like happened here, where the attorney-client privilege was breached, which people have literally gotten off from murdering people because of attorney-client privilege. People, I mean, there's been sure. horrible travesties that have occurred where if there was ever a chance that you would think this is it, attorney-client privilege has to be breached. And in those instances, it wasn't, and people right. who did wrong things went free. But in this case, it seems as if the ends justify the means, anything to take down Donald Trump. But can't this come back and bite Democrats? I mean, if if one of them's ever prosecuted, it seems like they're impervious to prosecution. Hillary <laughs> Clinton, you know, so many of them who right now, James Comey should be brought up on charges as well. There's a ton of different people who should definitely be under threat of prosecution, and they're not. But at some point, doesn't the pendulum sp- swing back the other way? And isn't it a Democrat who has their attorney-client privilege completely breached, and then you know, then it'll be a real travesty? Well, you know, that's the kind of thing that we, we, we've said for years. Um, and as you pointed out in your comments, um, it's hardly ever worked out. I mean, the only, space, the only, the only thing that we've seen where... What has been good for the goose has been good for the gander. Has been on the issue of uh, judicial confirmation, and that's because that has remained in um, democ- uh, you know, in, in 
in in, in Congress and not in the, within with the judiciary. But there, there is unquestionably a double standard. I mean, Alan Dershowitz, no right winger, has railed against this now for for months. He's a, he's mortified by what's going on, and quite understandably, I, I think holding out hope for a double standard. Uh, you know, and a you know, hoist by your own petard kind of uh, um, outcome is incredibly optimistic. I, I, and, and, I, and the problem here is that Cohen, on the one hand, is the most obvious person to have appealed the way things went here, but he's obviously cooperating with the people who prosecuted him. And my question is, how long has that cooperation been going on? What's the true nature of his relationship? With President Trump, but in fact, I, mean, I said obvious. I didn't fairly say appropriate or correct. The most appropriate and the most correct party to have objected to what went on with the, with the attorney-client privilege and Cohen was his client. The, the attorney-client privilege belongs to the client, not to the attorney. Um, the idea that newspapers uncritically carried headlines saying Cohen flips. You can't flip on your own client. You can't flip on your own client. It's your client. We're not, I've not heard a particularly cogent argument for the application of the crime fraud exception here. Certainly nothing that's come out since the plea has suggested the existence of facts that justify the crime fraud exception. So putting that aside, because right now it doesn't seem to be in play. Well, what what is the crime fraud exception? Crime fraud exception, broadly speaking, means... There are practical limits to the attorney-client privilege. If your client says, you know, Ron, you've been a great lawyer to me, and I just want you to know I'm going to go blow up the circus today, um, and I might not make it back, but as my attorney, I think you should know that here's where my will is. And, well, you're allowed to call the cops and say, oh, okay. something terrible is going to happen, or someone's, or, or someone's about to be defrauded. It has, there has to be a certain amount of immediacy. It's not merely the case that, your client says to you, I committed the crime. And that, that is well within the realm of attorney-client privilege. Here, so does this then... Even, nothing close to that. So, so then does the president say, like, let's, you know, let's say they come out with something explosive and the president's response is, yeah, and if you'd gotten that any other way, then I'd probably be in legal jeopardy, but I'm countersuing or my defense is that you breached the attorney-client privilege and Michael Cohen should be up on charges for dereliction of duty, he would be disbarred, or I don't know if it's dereliction. I don't well, know what not. the proper he's, term he's is. He's going to prison because of, because of the plea that he cops. Disbarment is autom- not automatic, but essentially automatic when you're convicted for a felony. So that's not an issue. Cohen is, unless, again, there's some magical mystery that we have not been apprised of, Cohen is, a, is not an important person. He is, a, he is a pawn. He's been played. Who's playing him for what purposes? I don't know. Whether or not he goes to jail, a lost license, is not shouldn't be of concern to us. This is a political operation, not a law enforcement operation. So President Trump's concern presumably would not so much be this is the fruit of the poison tree. It should not have been, it should, you know, it's evidence that, that, should, that can't be used against me. There, you're, you're quite right that those should be defenses available to him if any of this material were attempted to be used against him unless, for some reason, he is deemed to have waived his, uh, his attorney-client privilege, which has been suggested in, in certain ways. Certainly, he didn't protest 
the way you might have expected when the rulings were made permitting permitting the uh, attorney-client material. Um, why he didn't, frankly, I think is one of the interesting things about this. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine an aggressive person who loves litigation, uh, like President Trump, not sending in a pack of uh, legal wolverines to, to you know, do everything they could to, to prevent this from happening, to, to seek a, a, a writ of mandamus if the, if the Southern District had not gone his way. Um, it seemed very passive. So, but why? Is, why would why, why would he yeah. be passive at this point? Is it that he's just biding his time because he knows whatever they have is going to mean the end of his presidency? So he wants to get as much done as he can. Or oh, I mean, gosh, what is the no. reason for that? Then I can't imagine that it's that because then I then I, I don't think biding his time. I think I think he'd be biting, kicking, and scratching to avoid the stuff coming out. No, I think it's rather. I mean, listen, things that we didn't expect to happen have happened as a, as a result of this strange juxtaposition of relationships and loyalties. I mean, so you have Lanny Davis, Democrats are extraordinaire, going on all the news shows over the last week or so and announcing that the steel dossier is, is garbage. And, <laughs> I, I and, saw that. I, I, I kind of laughed like that. And then I was like, wait, did right, he just say what I thought wait, he said? <laughs> wait is the dominant word here. What's going on? How is that happening? How could you have, even if you were a billionaire, ever imagined putting together enough money to get a Democrat mouthpiece like Lanny Davis to do that? He also subsequently has walked back his own comments about the Prague meeting, about the Trump Tower meeting. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. I, you know, one thing you learn when you practice you know, law, especially if you do litigation, whether it's criminal or, or civil, is that you have to be patient with respect to the un, the, the revelation of information. It's, it's clear to me we don't either we don't know everything or we, or we know nothing. I don't mm-hmm. understand what's going on. Okay, so are you are you are you kind of intimating at this point that? So I, I know I know the feeling about we don't know anything because I honestly was kind of thinking because I've kind of put it on the back burner because I really am concerned with what the president's doing on, you know, the 100 points that he said he was going to take care of as president. And yeah. I feel like those are much more productive items to focus on, because with the legal side, not only am I, you know, obviously I, I'm not a lawyer, but I also don't think that it's even like worth my time to try to figure out what's going on when so much of what they're doing is behind closed doors. It's not like the OJ Simpson trial where every piece of evidence we got to see it as it was, you know, unfurled. And so we got to kind of make up our minds as we went along and ate our popcorn with this. It's more like, well, so now they've given some other person immunity, but his, we just found out that the, the white house general counsel has been cooperating since day one. A person who has stuff to hide doesn't have the white house general counsel cooperate since day one like i just feel like he's kind of like yep so you now you you've talked to cohen annoying but you still ain't gonna find anything is it is that your feeling or what yeah i i mean it it does appear completely spitballing here that the cohen piece was some kind of set play some kind of you know distraction diversion um, it's so inconsequential. And, you know, the damage done, I mean, look, there is, as you know, a, a whole school of thought about an elaborate running joke is 4D chess game played by mm-hmm. President Trump and Jeff Sessions, <laughs> where this is really all 
it's all flat, it's all going to add up, and all the bad guys are going to be rounded up, and it's going to, you know, be, there'll be mass hangings, and okay, fine, fine. It's, so far, we're, you know, we're waiting. But, I, but I'll say this much. It's hard for me to, to understand how things can be as they seem, because they are profoundly illogical, and they don't add up with the man that we see, with Donald Trump. Why would he keep Jeff Sessions on this long if he were as ineffectual and uninvolved as he seems to be? You make a very important point, which is, how about the rest of the agenda? Where's it going? There's stuff that doesn't necessarily require legislative success that it seems to not being, you know, that it does not seem to be getting acted on. Um, I, I don't frankly know it. I, there probably are people who could, who could tell us but are not going to. Uh, as of right now, you know, it, it is a problem, according to this fantastic, glorious concept that it's all a game and it's all a, a, a deep play and, and that, you know, the, all the wrongdoers are going to be perp-marched out, you know, sometime between now and the elections. How do you let the institutions of government and the judicial system be used as a stage for a performance? That, the damage that's done by that only undermines further the very real sense of cynicism and skepticism that people have about justice in this, in this country. So I, I, hope, I hope some of this makes sense at some point. Right now, it's very hard to understand. Well, I, I, so last year, I spent some time writing for uh, America's First Freedom. It's an NRA publication. And during that time, I spent a lot of time looking at what individual agencies were doing and how that intersected with the Second Amendment. And one of the things that uh, has kind of gone unsung in mainstream media that I wrote about was the relationship between Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the Department of Justice, and President Trump in increasing dramatically the number of felony drug prosecutions on individuals who some of them were committing violent crimes. And those crimes were not being prosecuted under the Obama administration. And they, the prosecution of those crimes went up by first 33% and then hundreds of percentage points under Jeff Sessions within like 90 days of him be, uh, assuming the role. Like he literally dropped the hammer on those prosecutions and they just ramped up. And there's other things as well. They don't get reported in the mainstream, but I just don't, I, I know it could be a distraction or it could really be that bad of a relationship, but I don't believe the relationship between Sessions and the president is as bad as they want us to think it is. And it's hard to imagine it would be. I, it really is. It, it strains credulity. Thank you so much, Michael, for, or, I'm sorry, Ron. Thank you, Ron, for coming on um, and joining us today. Absolutely. Ron Coleman, attorney and legal scholar. Great interview. Thanks for being here. We're going to be back with more right after this. You can also call in. If I missed your call, I'm sorry, 866-963-2037. We live in a day when America's families are under attack like never before. Buddy Smith, Senior Vice President of the American Family Association. The war against biblical principles rages on numerous fronts. The internet, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., America's corporate boardrooms, and the list goes on. At American Family Association, we're committed to standing against the enemies of God, the enemies of your family. And we recognize it's an impossible task without God's favor and your partnership. 
Thank you for being faithful to pray for this ministry, to give financially, and to respond to our calls for activism. What you do on the home front is crucial to what we do on the battlefront. We praise God for your faithfulness. And may he give us many victories in the battles ahead as we work together to restore our nation's biblical foundations. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Just how many genders are there? Scientific evidence has shown that our DNA is encoded male or female. There are no other designations at the genetic level. Tell that to legislators in Massachusetts. Their attempt to follow the trend in Europe of permitting a third gender designation of X on driver's licenses was thwarted by a quick-thinking Republican, State Representative Jim Lyons. Lyons knew that each amendment to a bill in the Massachusetts state legislature must be given 10 minutes for debate and three minutes of voting time. Instead of considering the X designation only, he added all 73 of Facebook's gender options for consideration as well. Debating all of the gender options would cause their reasoning for allowing just the one addition to fall apart. As time was of the essence, as Lyons completed amendments for 35 of the 73 gender options, his Democratic counterparts withdrew the bill. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. The House of Representatives hasn't met since July, but no big customary August recess this month for the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell plans another week of work for the Senate. Senators will debate a slate of 17 of President Trump's nominees. They range from a member on the Fed Board of Governors to an Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, plus a host of federal judges. Coming back to work this August was not a conventional decision, but of course there's nothing conventional about the historic level of obstruction which Senate Democrats have systematically visited upon this administration. But Senate floor traffic won't command the most oxygen in Washington. The majority of attention remains trained on the guilty plea of Michael Cohen, the conviction of Paul Manafort, and whether President Trump might fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Senate Majority Whip John Cornyn says the Senate can't confirm a potential Sessions successor. And GOP Nebraska Senator Ben Sass says he won't vote to confirm a successor if Mr. Trump fires Sessions because he won't be a, quote, political hack. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you today. Um, yeah, Monday. I don't know if you guys had a whirlwind weekend. We certainly did. And I want to, uh, I want to, I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the church, but we had the best time yesterday down in Rolla, Missouri at this church. Okay, I'm going to tell you, it's the Cornerstone Church. It was fantastic. It was so I was expecting, you know, obviously we're going to church, so I didn't I, I'm never negative about that, but I was definitely thinking I just want to be at home in our home church and listen to our pastor and I'm just I'm going to be so, you know, like this isn't uh, you know, it's just not going to be home. But we were visiting our oldest daughter who the one we, you've been hearing about her. She's at, you know, in college and she's really um she's she's doing a great job. And so we went down to go to church with her and to spend some time with her because my husband and, and our son were off to the races on their last father-son trip together um, through the Sunrite Ministries, which our church does that trip once a year for the dads and the sons. And so they're off, you know, zip lining, water sliding, playing basketball, you know, because men know how to have fun when they have a retreat. They study God's word. They read a book, but they have fun. 
Women would have just had lectures the whole time and then a little bit of free time on our own to shop. That's that's what we would have. But the men are having a good time. So we're down and we're enjoying, uh, you know, just some time with with our daughter and the younger one and I are, are there with her. And we went to this church and it was just phenomenal. It was a great service. They had a lunch for the college students after that that we attended. And we got to meet so many other people there at the church. They really love those college students down there. And so it was wonderful. And uh, we were really blessed by the service. It was, um, you know, it's, it's rare that I go visit somebody else's church. And I'm like, wow, that was great. So, um, and we had a guest speaker at our church anyway, so I didn't miss anything. I did not miss our pastor speaking. So anyway, um, so now I, I want to talk about, we're going to close this loop with this foreign aid to the Palestinians. And so it's not that I don't care about the other foreign aid that our country actually spends. In fact, I'm going to give you a few numbers of some of the other countries that I think need to be um, defunded. But the Palestinian aid is of particular interest because it is funding terrorism. Okay? That's what's important here. Terrorism is being funded by American tax dollars. That should never be the case. It shouldn't be a big, long appropriations process to defund entities that are using American taxpayer dollars that are being borrowed, by the way, to fund terrorism. That should not be a problem. It should be something literally they just go in and vote and boom, it's done. So Rand Paul talks. This is back in 2004, just to let you know how long we've known they've been funding terrorism with our money. Back in 2004, he submits a bill to cut foreign aid to Hamas. It's number one. Well, the uh, stated goal of Hamas that runs Gaza is the destruction of Israel. They'll, they've now joined together with Fatah that runs the Palestinian Authority. We give them several hundred million dollars a year of precious American money. And all I'm asking is that they say that Israel has the right to exist as a precondition to getting the money. I think that's the least we can ask. I ask for unanimous consent today to pass the bill, and the Democrats came forward and they opposed this. And my question is, why? You want to keep giving money to the Palestinian Authority and potentially to Hamas, even though they are calling for the destruction of Israel? And so this is a big battle, and I've been enjoying this battle for over a year, but I'm not done with it. I'm going to make sure that no American dollar goes to any country that is not acting in a way that is in our best interest and to countries that don't recognize Israel's right to exist. So you're probably thinking, whoa, so back in 2004. Um, yeah, so I promised you some numbers. Here, here's, you're going to love this. We send Sweden. Let me make sure I get this right, because you guys, I, you have to know that this is like the, it's one of the most disturbing things ever. Disturbing. Okay. All right. So we give Sweden $1,269, $1,269. We give Iceland zero. We give Egypt $1,239,291,000. We give North Korea, the dictatorship of North Korea, we give them $2,142,161. They are getting shorted, obviously, because we give... Liechtenstein, zero, also getting shorted. Luxembourg, they get zero. Monaco, zero. Ireland, zero. Kuwait gets 112,000. I guess that's just for participation. Andorra gets zero. Burkina Faso gets 74,469,000. And what these numbers tell me is, I think some of these countries, they literally, they just, they, they realize, oh, 
America's giving out foreign aid and we're not getting any. So they hire a lobbying firm in the United States. They pay the lobbying firm a certain amount of money. And the lobbying firm says, well, we can't guarantee you anything, but we know we can get you something. They go, they lobby, they get something for the country. and It goes into our budget. And we taxpayers just keep on working like dogs to pay these taxes. Now, for Palestine, let me find that number for you. Palestine gets from the United States. Well, so first of all, what do they get it under? Because they have Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, Peru, Portugal, and Qatar. So exactly how are the Palestinians getting their money? Like under what country name are they getting it? Certainly they're not getting it under Hamas, are they? Syria gets 916,426,000. United Kingdom, a a perfectly self-sufficient, self-sustaining country. United Kingdom, $3,877,820. Why do they need money from us? Venezuela gets $9 million a year from the Americans. Vietnam, $157 million. Yemen, $305 million. $305 million, that's like a little less than a dollar for every American. Eritrea gets $119,000. Germany, $5 million a year. For what? I mean... What exactly? In some of these countries, have you ever heard of Comoros? They get a million dollars. China gets $42 million. We owe them money. Why don't we just apply our USAID budget to money that we owe them because we borrow money from them? Iran, $3 million. Iraq, $5 billion. Ireland, zero. Italy, $454,000. The Italians are getting not, they're not getting their fair share. Kuwait, $112,000. Kyrgyzstan, $41 million. Laos, 57 million. This adds up to a lot of money. These numbers by themselves, Morocco. Why would Morocco need $82 million from America? Mozambique, 514 million. You know that's not going to the people of Mozambique. That's going to some little tin pot dictator down there. And I still don't see a country on here that would equate to the Palestinians. So they're just getting it as a territory because this is a list from the Daily Caller that only lists countries that are getting money. So they're not on here. And I told you the 200 million is one third of their USAID. We know they're getting about 650 million in that in that pot. The question is why are they even getting a dollar? Just let it implode. Let it go on on its own. And then when they learn how to stop doing terrorism, then we come back to the table and talk about giving them some money. After we bounced our budget and we're no longer borrowing it to give it to them. I mean, how simple is that? How, how easy would that be? So here is Rand Paul, last clip. He's talking about, again, no longer funding foreign aid to Palestine. I want to thank the chairman for having this committee as hearing on the subject. As, as you'll recall, in 2014, I brought this subject up uh, in Senate Bill 2265, where I offered uh, a bill that would have cut off aid to the Palestinian Authority unless they were to uh, renounce all ties to terrorism and payments such as these. Uh, the chairman blocked me at the time uh, from bringing it forward in the full House or the full Senate, uh, but said it would be a good committee hearing. And so I'm glad we are having a committee hearing on the subject, not my bill, but uh, the subject, and I'm supportive of the subject. I think, though, that um, 
I tend to agree with Senator Risch in the sense that you, know, you beat around the edges and say how much we love Palestinian Authority for all these other things we have to have for stability. We're going to cut some a little bit here, maybe. And people are worried, oh, gosh, if we cut any of their money, they'll be mad. <laughs> you know, people sense weakness and, you know, cut it all. Cut every last penny of it. If you want to restart some of it, restart it when they change their behavior. That would be the strength that actually would show something. But nibbling around the edges, they sense your weakness and they will continue to do it. They've been doing it forever. But I guess the thing that really galls me is uh, from uh, Ambassador Shapiro's uh, testimony that the Knesset is considering withholding tax revenue commensurate with the prisoners' payments, although it's far from clear that it will reach final passage. If the Knesset can't even withhold the tax money, some amount of money equivalent to what the payments are, my goodness, what kind of message are we sending? So if we've got a message, if the Knesset's listening to us, for goodness sakes, you've got to do at least that first step if you object to people paying the families of people who are killing innocent citizens. So, um, you know, both sides need to act. Okay, so he's right. Now, I'm going to pivot over to another topic, and we we have adequately covered that. I think it is one of those questions that when someone comes up to you, be they Democrat, Republican, Independent, and they say, I'm running for X and I want your vote, and they're going to D.C., so some federal office, the first thing you ask them is, well, will you vote to defund Palestine? Will you vote to defund any entity that doesn't deserve our money? Will you vote to reevaluate all USAID funding, all foreign aid? And if they say, oh, well, that's just a drop in the bucket, then I can't vote for you. You don't have proper spending priorities for me. But thank you for stopping by. Thank you for asking for my vote, but I won't vote for you. That's how we get these people to come in line on on these spending issues. Same thing with the pro-life issue. So where are you on defunding Planned Parenthood? Well, I think it could be done, but sorry, I can't vote for you. You either believe in defunding them or you don't, period. Thanks for coming by. That's it. Where are you on religious liberty? Do you think that Any person who has some newfound right or feeling or sexual proclivity should be able to force a business to do something for them as opposed to going and finding another business to do it. If they say, well, some people need rights. Sorry, I can't vote for you. Thank you for stopping by. Bye bye. That's how we have to get as Christians. Instead of saying we're with this party or that party, we need to say, "Uh, child of the king, voting priorities, biblical worldview. What? Voting priorities are the biblical worldview. Worldview. If you are some kind of atheist, then you possibly cannot have a uh, biblical worldview. So, no, sorry, can't vote for you. Is it a religious litmus test? No, it's just making sure that people that we send to Washington, D.C. with a biblical worldview will actually do what they promise. All these other people, they don't have a biblical worldview because if they did, they would feel bad about lying to us to get our votes. They would feel bad about lying to us to get our political contributions. That's what would be the thing. Now, uh, I don't know if you guys remember. Last weekend, Coulter came on the show to talk about her new book. And in her new book, which I have been subtly plowing my way through, she talked about this lie that the president said that Nazis were good people. Now, I thought I'd covered this before, but I want to be on the record so that I remember covering it, so that it's you know forever enshrined in the podcast. I want to make sure it's been covered. The president did not say that the Nazis were good people or the people who were there who were white supremacists were good people. He said there were good people on both sides because the original protest that turned into a white supremacy rally was organized by a group of people who got a permit who were protesting the removal of two statues. They weren't white supremacists. They were regular everyday Americans who just don't want to see statues pulled down because they feel that that is erasing American history. Now, whether or not you agree with Robert E. Lee's statues remaining up, 
people who want them to remain up have every right to get a permit and protest. They're not white supremacists. They simply want the statues to remain. The people who showed up to protest and be a part of the rally that was organized were white supremacists. So there were white supremacists there. But when the president said there were good people on both sides, he wasn't talking about white supremacists. He was talking about the original protesters who got the permits who actually were just regular Americans who didn't want statues removed from their town. On the other side, the counter-protest was organized by Antifa. There are a bunch of violent thugs who are out to tear down cities, burn cop cars, and beat people up for wearing Trump gear. Those people were on the other side. So when he said there were bad people on both sides, he was referring to the white supremacists on the right who were with the people who were protesting the, the, that they the wanted the, the uh, statues to stay up. And then there were the Antifa protesters who did not get a permit. They showed up and started raining down violence. And they were the ones where he said there were bad people on both sides. So there is at no point a moment in which Donald Trump said that white supremacists were the good people. He said the people who wanted the, the statues to stay up were the good people. This is so simple and easy to understand. I could explain that to a five-year-old and they would get it. And I'm still going to have somebody in the chat room on one of these pages talking about how, well, the president said white supremacists were good people. He didn't say that. Not only did you not hear him say that, all you've done is sit up and consume copious amounts of lie TV. And now you're regurgitating back out what you've heard. No thoughts have occurred. The thoughts, the, the actual sounds that you heard went in your ear and went straight to the back of your throat so you could just push them right back out. You hadn't thought about anything. Stop saying lies. I'm not going to put up with it over here. I can actually think when things come in my ear, it goes around up in this area and synapses fire and thoughts occur. And then if I don't understand what I heard, I go research it. Paper, books, the Internet, it's available to you, too. Instead of running around spouting lies about Donald Trump, criticize him for the things that he's actually done that you don't like instead of making stuff up. I mean, I have totally had it with that. I'll be back with you tomorrow. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.